and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit more about myself. So like today's guest, I work as an executive coach, and I also work as a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We literally want them to stop calling them soft skills, and we want them and you to start calling them strong skills. We believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind, and the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the book via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. If you did read the book, we'd love it if you went over to Amazon and wrote us a review. It really means the world to us. Speaking of reviews, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd also love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach for both the book and the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Brad Stolberg is someone who I've been familiar with from afar. I've read his first two books, which he co-authored with Steve Magnus. Those books are called Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox. And we had Steve on the podcast previously, and he was fantastic. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I highly recommend you check out my talk with Steve. And together, Brad and Steve have sold over 250,000 copies of those books in 15 languages. Really, really impressive stuff. And those books have been designed and developed specifically for people to help them avoid burnout and hopefully fulfill their potential. So they really talk about sustainability when they think about success. They think about what is the best path and the best way to do so. And Brad's new and upcoming book, which just recently came out, it's called The Practice of Groundedness, shares a transformative model for success that defies the never enough. Many of us who are striving and want to get better and want to improve, that's why you're here listening to this podcast. Sometimes we can get into traps. And this conversation today is going to be about Brad's journey and how at times he's run into some traps with his own mental health and his own ability to compartmentalize his striving mindset. So the practice of groundedness is a provocative and practical guide for overcoming an always on mentality and attaining a more nourishing, lasting and authentic kind of success. At his core, Brad is a writer and he's a coach. He also does speaking, but we're going to talk about his desire to write and his desire to coach. And I think you're just going to find him to be an authentic, genuine, true human being who is curious and has a strong desire to help people thrive and not just thrive from a maximizing standpoint, but also thrive in their relationships and in their life. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you 
Brad Stolberg. Brad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I've been a fan of your work for quite some time and uh, we were just talking about it. I, I reached out to you yesterday and you said, hey, Brian, I got this window and I had a lunch meeting get canceled yesterday. So the, the window completely opened up. I'm curious for you, when you work with clients, you work with people and, and someone cancels on you, how do you handle that? I try not to take it personally because I've had to cancel on other people. And it is almost always because I have to take an animal to the veterinarian or a kid is homesick from school or just like an idiot, I double scheduled something. Um, it's kind of like when someone cuts me off in traffic, the inclination is to get really mad. But then I think about all the times I've accidentally cut someone off just because I didn't see them in the blind spot. Um, so I try to approach that the same way. Now, obviously, if there's like a perpetual canceller, um, well, then maybe that person and I just aren't meant to talk and I don't have to take a shot at the third or fourth attempt. Yeah, it's something that I've worked on with myself because I do take my calendar seriously and I prioritize certain things, but every once in a while, um, things come up, you screw up. Um, and for me, I think that not taking a personally piece is a reminder for all of us. And I think we've all gone through it, especially in the pandemic where, um, people have complicated lives and, and challenging situations and circumstances. I mentioned coaching. When did you first get interested in coaching? When was it something that you decided to dive into? Give us some background on your, your coaching background. Well, if I go all the way back, I would probably say I first became interested in coaching when I was 13 years old. And my younger brother, then nine, was playing in all these youth sports leagues. And I was also playing in youth sports leagues couple levels up based on our age difference. And I started also coaching his teams. So I was coaching a bunch of nine and 10 year olds in basketball and then in baseball and then in soccer. And I loved the coaching part of it almost as much as I love the playing part of it, which for a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kid, um, I guess, looking back is kind of an anomaly. So on the one hand, it goes way back in a more um, professional executive performance coaching practice. It's been about six years and it started with people reading some of my public work and asking me um, for advice informally. And then eventually people started asking me for advice formally. Uh, like most new coaches, I didn't really at the time know that coaching was something that happened outside of sports. I thought that there was coaching in sports. And then there was therapy for everyone else. I didn't realize that executive performance coaching was a thing. And then of course I was really insecure about it. You know, why me? What do I have to teach these people about their roles, their organizations, their lives, especially a lot of these people that are so accomplished in their own right. So I had to get over my own misconceptions about coaching. I had to get over and still have to get over my own insecurities. Um, and, and, and that's where I'm at right now. So it's been about six years of my executive coaching practice. And I know you also did consulting. What's the distinction for you between consulting and the work you were doing at McKinsey compared to coaching and the work you do with executives? It's so much deeper and in, in intimate in the one-on-one -on -one coaching practice. McKinsey, right? You're hired by a company to solve a problem. And your real responsibility is to solve that problem into the client, not to any one given individual. Now, is there coaching in holding clients' hands and teaching along the way? Of course. But the problem is what's in scope. And even if you define that broadly, you're billing hours and they want you to be solving that problem. Whereas in a one-on-one -on -one coaching relationship, the responsibility is simply to that person and to that relationship so I find that the topics covered can be a lot more wide ranging and I don't have to advise that person on what is in the best interest of any given outcome other than the outcome of their life. Yeah. Six years ago, you start doing this. What were some of the mistakes you made when you first started doing coaching that you try not to make today? Talking too much. <laughs> it's funny because you're interviewing me, so I'm sure I'll talk a lot today. I think that also stems just from some of the insecurity as a new coach. You feel like people are paying you a good chunk of change, so you should be giving them advice and giving them counsel and, and talking. And um, I've actually found that 
the more of it I can resist butting in to give advice or to give counsel and just ask one or two more clarifying questions, the more I actually work with someone to get to the heart of whatever issue that they're working through um, and, and really help them figure out the solution themselves and just guide them toward it. And, and I think most people are also more apt to follow through on something if they come to it on their own, perhaps with a little help versus being told something. You and I have some stuff in common. I started coaching athletes at a very young age as well, probably because I love basketball and my basketball career was short-lived. Um, but I also uh, got into executive coaching relatively young and you did as well. And so I'm curious for you, how do you think about age as you approach a speaking gig or writing a book or, or a room full of executives? Uh, how do you think about age for yourself? And um, I'm just gonna leave it open-ended for you. Yeah, I try not to, to think about it too much, to be quite frank. Um, I try more to think about these are the things that I have some true expertise on. And I can speak to, coach to, educate on those things. And on many other things, I don't have expertise. So I've never had true content expertise with a coaching client. I've coached leaders at energy companies. I've coached leaders at healthcare companies. I've coached physicians. I've coached people in tech. I've coached people in entertainment. I have never worked in those industries, let alone led organizations in those industries. So it's not my job to answer questions about those industries. It's my job to coach to certain principles and then to wrestle with those principles in my client to figure out how they're best applied to those unique situations. So I think it's a really... Um, good way to, 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 to keep some strong and appropriate humility, which is, hey, I know these principles, but their application can look different given industry, age, season of the business cycle, season of someone's life. Um, so for me, it's, it's really like half teaching and then putting my writer hat on, it's like half reporting with the client. And the reporting is learning about how they're applying these things. And again, trying to ask the right questions to keep them on their path. And, you know, Brian, I'm sure you've come across this in your own practice. It's not the right fit for everyone. Some people, they're a brand new CTO or head of product, and they want to be coached by the former CTO or head of product at a big company because they want counsel and guidance on like in the weeds, product decision, engineering decisions. I'm not the right person for those people. Whereas other people come looking to broadly improve their overall performance, to feel like they're less on the edge of burnout, to feel like they're a more effective communicator. Um, and those are the people that I tend to work better with. You mentioned writing. You have a lot of time spent on writing. You have coaching. You have speaking. Is there one of those, I'm going to call them identities, or one of those vocations, so to speak, that you feel most alive in? Is there one that you really feel like, yeah, that's the thing that, that I'm meant to be doing? When I'm coaching, it's coaching. And when I'm writing, it's writing. Uh, speaking, I do, but it's never speaking. So the way that I worked through this, um, I credit my own coach, Brooke is her name. And just as recent as a year ago, I was really struggling because my coaching practice was thriving. And I was going to have this book coming out. And I was also being asked to do a lot of writing for really interesting publications on interesting topics. And what I found is that whenever I was in a writing groove, I'd have a coaching client come up and I started to resent the coaching. And then whenever I had a coaching clients want to schedule with me, I was on deadline for writing and I started to resent the writing. And the worst way to be a coach is to resent the fact that you have to coach. And the worst way to be a writer is to resent the fact that you have to write. And, you know, in an ode to why coaching is so valuable, like my coach helped me see what was right in front of me, which is the issue isn't that you're coaching or writing. The interest is that you're not setting clear boundaries and you're not compartmentalizing these two really important parts of your life. So what was the solution? It was nothing drastic. It was stacking all of my coaching sessions on Mondays and Fridays. I can do that. My practice is never more than 20 people. So I still have good access that way. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are creative days. And it solved all of my problems overnight. Um, because coaching 
20 people over four days with some days, two sessions, some days, three, some days, one, some days, none, uh, is so different than saying I've got five to six coaching hours, these two days a week, these are coaching days. I walk the dog, I exercise myself a little and I coach. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I have unstructured time. I can research, I can write, and I don't have to coach. And, um, it's just completely changed the texture of both of those things over the last year. It's interesting. I've been doing my work for about 10 years and it wasn't until this year that I started to really organize my calendar and my schedule for the first nine years. I always thought about how can I make it most convenient for the client? And that even involved driving to them, commuting to them, you know, finding how I can make it work for them. And I don't regret that. I think I needed to do that to be where I'm at now, but Mm -hmm. mine's actually the reverse. So I do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are heavy coaching. Monday is typically podcasting, writing, whatever it might be. And then Friday, I just this year started saying, you know, F it. Like I'm, I'm going to see if I can take off on Friday and go play golf and go, um, you know, do, do some other stuff that I might want to do. Um, but it's interesting. I had a client this morning who was saying, Brian, why don't you set up your schedule so that you have July and August off and just to take off the summers. And I actually thought it was a really great point, um, that he was making and my wife works in the school system. So taking the summers off would be nice in a lot of ways. But then I looked at him and I said, I don't know if I'd not want to coach for two months. Like I love coaching and I love working with people. And I've had other people say, Brian, are you going to scale? Like, how do you scale yourself? And I'm like, I don't know. I love doing the thing. Um, so those are questions that I'm grappling with and constantly thinking about. But as I hear you talk about your schedule, I think all of us, if we're intentional and thoughtful, if we're working for ourselves and we have the autonomy to do that, can start to create the schedule that we want. And in some part, the life that we work want. like a lot of people don't take the time to think about, well, what is it that I want to do? They just think about the next thing and the next thing, the next thing. Um, any thoughts on that? Cause I just went on a little bit of a rant. Right. So I think that, um, I very much agree with you about the really trying to own your energy and attention. Um, I often will get pushback. Well, you have your own coaching practice. You're a writer. I'm at a big organization. And of course, there are more constraints in organizational life, but I've had this experience with countless coaching clients. Most people have more autonomy than they think. They're just insecure about flexing it. So no one is you, forcing Brad, you. Why, why do you think that is that people are insecure about flexing their autonomy? I think because everybody is like wanting to be a people pleaser. And I think especially the more senior you get at organizations, part of the reason you get senior is because you pleased a lot of people along the way. Um, And then you get to this point and suddenly you've got no time or energy for the parts of the job that you actually like and saying no to meetings or blocking time on your calendars. One of the first things I do with almost all my coaching clients is make sure that they have at least four hours a week blocked off for deep focus work to move their priorities down the field. And without fail, they all freak out when we first start working together. And then two months later, they're like, I'm feeling so much more energized. I'm actually back to doing the work that I like to do. And um, did I upset a few people? Maybe, but you know, at the margins. And I give my own example, like you, when I shifted from having pretty much open access Monday to Friday for coaching to two days a week, I was sure that I was going to lose clients, that people were going to ask me. One person noticed, and that one person is a physician that also runs a department, and she's in clinic all day those days. So twice a month, I meet her Wednesday during lunch. That was it. My other clients, no one even noticed. So in they're paying me a lot of money. They have the, like Our whole relationship is based on intimacy and honesty. If they had a problem with it, they would have told me. But I was carrying the story in my head that they would. Um, so I think that the same thing happens in organizational life. Like you don't have to say yes to every meeting. And if you are truly serious about blocking off time for deep focus, strategic work, you just put it on your calendar and you don't budge, period. Well, the amazing thing is, is how many CEOs and presidents who started and founded their own companies, they often, I, I find in my work, are the ones that struggle with this as much as anybody. And I had on the podcast, Dan Helfrich, who's the CEO of Deloitte uh, and not a McKinsey guy, but a Deloitte guy. And, you know, Dan's got 
I think it's like 50,000 people that are under him. And he does play-by-play for Georgetown university soccer team. Like Dan takes, and by the way, Georgetown doesn't have lights. So they play during the day. So he'll leave the office and go to call soccer games. And I love that because so many people that are in Dan's shoes would say, no, I have to be the first one in the last one out. And, and that's just what I, the model that I have to show. But Dan said, it's so powerful for my employees to see that you can have passionate things that you want to do. And you should go do those things, whether that's being there for your kids at pickup or uh, starting your own podcast or whatever it might be. And so he's impacting the culture in that way. And I think a lot of times those people that start a company, they they then think that they have to set a different example and it impacts the culture in, in such a profound way. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that. Another theme that I've seen in my own coaching practice is at first when clients start blocking off this time for themselves, they're embarrassed or ashamed. So they pretend that they're in meetings and then eventually they just start saying, I'm doing deep focus work. Mm -hmm. And they think that people are going to be like, wait, you can't do that. Why are you doing that? Of course, what people say is, oh my gosh, I'm going to start doing this too. Like I admire you so much for doing that. And it can definitely have a really positive cultural effect. And what ends up happening is the meetings that are kind of BS end up getting cut throughout an entire organization as people start to prioritize deep focus work. So writing and coaching, you're, you've clearly made time for that, but you did not say the speaking aspect was something that makes you feel alive. Yet when I go on your website, which by the way, I had to do under 24 hours because we set up this call and I'm not as prepared as I usually am, which is a whole different podcast for a different day, which I think is actually very healthy. Um, but you know, there's, there's a 20 minute talk that you're giving with you, you're speaking and you're highlighting speaking on the website. So talk to me a little bit about how you still focus on speaking. And obviously the pandemic has created challenges with speaking, but how do you think about speaking? How do you uh, step into that? If it's not the thing that maybe you focus on as much as the writing and coaching. Yeah. So I'm not going to make my speaking agent happy. And um, (laughs) so I hope that they're not listening, but um, speaking helps to pay the bills. And that's how I see it. I also see speaking is a way to get people to read my books um, because I am a reader. So I have no problem. If I, if I hear about a book that is remotely interesting, I, I get it. And I have to remind myself that a lot of people only read one to two books an entire year and they want a book that's going to transform their life. And for them, reading a review of a book or reading an essay by an author, that's not enough. But if someone goes and wows them in a talk, then maybe they'll give that person's book a chance. So I view speaking um, primarily to, to like turn people onto my books because I think there's so much more in a book that you can't get across in even the best 20 to an hour talk. Um, so much like the other areas of my life, I set boundaries around my speaking. I only do a certain number of speaking gigs a year. Um, they're priced in a way that like often the decisions are made for the client and for me. It's been a lot better for me during COVID because the virtual stuff is significantly easier. Um, It's not that I inherently have anything against speaking. I actually like it when I'm doing it, but the travel, the logistics, um, all of that, you realize that like what seems like an hour talk with prep meetings and whatnot is often like a whole week. Um, And for, for me, I value that time for the writing and the coaching so much more and um, boundaries. It's a big part of what I write about. It's a big part of my coaching practice. And in my own life, like if all I cared about was relevance and money, I would speak 50 times a year easily, but I don't, I care about autonomy a lot more. So as a result, maybe I speak five to 10 times a year. When did you realize that autonomy was something that you really valued? Um, Probably when my son was born, he's three and a half now. I think I'd have a lot easier time going, speaking, staying at a hotel. And now it's just like, nah, like I'd rather be at home. We also have a German shepherd that like I'm totally smitten by. He's only 11 months old. And it's like, if we don't need the extra money from extra talks, 
like, again, my agent's going to kill me, but I'd rather spend a day walking my dog with my son for two hours and then reading a book. Well, I'll help you out with your agent for a minute because I'm the same way. I don't, I don't, I've had friends and amazing people that do 50 talks a year to a hundred talks. I mean, like uh, God bless them. And you can bank because if you're any good, you're getting paid like at least five to 10 K a talk. So like you can make serious money too. And I have friends that make seriously serious money. Um, but I just had this question. I'm not going to name who these people are, but they're best-selling authors. They endorsed your book. And I just asked yeah. these, these two people, I said, you know, do you all enjoy speaking? And they both said, no, we, we really don't. Um, and it's interesting though, because to me, going back to the four hours, why did they tell? Why did they tell you that they did it? Because I know, like, there's one person, Adam Grant, who speaks a lot, and he loves speaking. I've talked to him about this, so I'm not going to name names about the other people. But what, like, why did they tell you that they did it? I think those two people are so damn curious, and so they they love learning and writing and researching. Why do they? do it. I mean, I think I, you, I know who one of them is now, but I won't well, say <laughs> I think you hit the nail. I think you hit the nail on the head, though. And I think it's look, it's very lucrative to go somewhere yeah. for an hour and make 10, 15, 20, whatever it is like there aren't that many things in life that you can do that. Um, right. So I think that's a piece. And then to your point about impact and influence for me, I'm the same way. I, a perfect amount of speaking for me would be like 15 gigs a year, maybe once a month, maybe a little more because I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching. I, one of the reasons I do this podcast is to create more impact and influence. And so for me, when I get in a room with a couple hundred people and share what I think is valuable and important, like I can't do that in a one-on-one -on -one setting. So there's, there is fulfillment for me, but to your point, I find it exhausting. I mean, it, it takes, coaching gives me energy. My wife, she knows like when I see clients in a day, she notices I'm different than even when I'm writing. Um, mm -hmm. but when I speak, like when I'm done speaking, I don't want to be around people. Like I am, I'm toast. I, I'm, I'm just, yeah. cause I have trouble sleeping the night before. I don't like to travel. I have two kids like you, like a big part of my life is I want to be home for dinner. Um, so my I, coaching mentor, I'm sure, has like subconscious or conscious bias. Um, he's a guy named Ed Batista and um, a really like veteran, well-seasoned, longtime executive coach. And he is very serious about his coaching practice and he never speaks. And he could he could make he's like, you know, probably the 30 to 50K a talk bracket. So if he wanted to, he could crush it. Um, and same thing. He's like, it just exhausts me. And like, would it be nice to have all that extra money? Yes. Do I need it? No. So I'm just going to like have this, this rigid boundary. Um, well, yeah. The other, the other reason why I think it is healthy to do it is if you're going to talk about peak performance or you're going to talk about like my book is all about mindset. It's important to be on a stage and have to practice what you preach. And so I do use a lot of the stuff that I work on with, especially when I work with athletes um, who are trying to execute and do things a certain way. I do think there's something healthy and there's an audience and there's judgment and there's evaluation and they send you, Hey, this is the feedback that we got from your talk. I think there is something healthy for me at least to go through that process. I just don't want to do that as my livelihood all the time. Um, so that resonates with me as, as you're talking the, the, you also mentioned therapy earlier, and I know you, you have been open about obsessive compulsive disorder and depression and anxiety. And those are things that I am fortunate that I have not had to deal with in my life yet. It certainly can happen in the future. I've worked with a lot of clients who have had those challenges because I work with human beings and human beings have mental health challenges. But I'd love to learn from you about what you've learned going through some of those challenges and being in therapy and how it's helped shape who you are today. Yeah. So, um, well, let me, let me actually step back before diving in. Cause it's the question that I'm almost like always asked with prospective coaching clients, which is how is coaching different than therapy? So let me start there and then we can go into like things that I've learned. So I answer this question, therapy takes an individual that is not functioning normally or not functioning at what we would consider to be ordinary because they are debilitated by 
mental illness and it gets them up to a level where they are considered ordinarily functioning. Only therapists can do that. I do not think that coaches should do that. I do not think they can. I think you need, you need to be a licensed clinical social worker, a psychologist, have that training, have that pattern recognition. Coaching takes someone that is already functioning normally or even above normal and helps them to function even better. Coaching and therapy can draw from very similar, if not the same toolkits, but the different is the application from high functioning to super high functioning versus not really able to function to functioning. Um, and I work with a therapist that I refer clients to because I've had instances where, you know, there's a fine line between anxiety about a meeting at work that suddenly becomes crippling anxiety in your life or distress about a situation at work that leads to thoughts of self-harm. Um, and I have that boundary like really, really firm. So that's the first thing. That's how I separate them. I also just freaking love therapists. So I don't think a coach can do therapy. I do think a therapist can do coaching. Um, so uh, that's, that's where I stand there. I think sometimes where therapists struggle as coaches is therapists by nature, especially early on with a client, tend not to push because such a part of a therapeutic relationship is empathy, is safety. Um, if people are really sick, there's like, again, pushing has higher risks. So whereas in coaching, a big part of the coach is to push and to learn how to push appropriately. So I think if therapists that then go into this kind of coaching have a weak spot, it's that perhaps they don't push enough. They're not as prescriptive. Um, it's not good or bad. It just is. So then in terms of, you know, having gone through pretty intensive therapy for eight months for obsessive compulsive disorder, um, I, I learned so much, but in particular, just the power of these third wave evidence-based programs. So in particular, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and then something called exposure and response prevention and how effective they are at the extremes and how they can also be really effective for the non-extremes. It's interesting. I, I went to a therapist um, because I was sending clients to therapists. Um, we were recognizing some things that were going on. And so I have a bunch of therapists that I refer business to. My uncle's a psychotherapist and he's been a mentor to me. And when I went to see the therapist, I was, I was fine. Like I was, I guess you would call well. And, you know, I, I think one of the other big distinctions that I'll make is for me, at least coaching is also about, um, homework and behavior change and action and, and really moving from where I am to where I want to go. Whereas therapy doesn't always, but often involves looking back at how I became who I am. And I agree. I think they can actually live together. And when I've had clients that are in therapy, it actually makes our work even that much more powerful because yeah. they're doing deep inner work. And then they're thinking about, all right, well, where do I want to go? Um, but those are other distinctions that I think are important that we don't always as a society do a great job. We, you, you even mentioned psychologists, social work. There's also psychiatrists. I think a lot of people are ignorant. And I say that word not to be demeaning. I think as a society, we still have a ways to go as far as what are the distinctions and because they all have value. And, and, they and all even within even within therapy, there's like psychodynamic therapy which is like a lot of looking back, but then there's like behavioral therapy, which is, you know, what happened in the past happened, depression, anxiety, whatever, it's the result of a gazillion factors. So we're just gonna focus on your behaviors right now. And that can look a lot more like coaching. Um, so there are definitely um, all these distinctions. And I agree that I think a lot of people just kind of throw coaching into one boat. I mean, the listeners of your podcast probably understand more of the nuance, but man, out in the world, Coaching is what happens if you get dinged on a performance review at work and therapy is what happens if you're depressed. And like, that's what people think about. And both of those things are completely wrong. Yeah. When someone says, Oh, you should work with Brian. And I always am like, no, I don't think you got it right. Like my clients are just curious, open-minded, driven, ambitious people. Um, yeah. and I'm fortunate to walk alongside them. Um, for you, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, anxiety. Did that, did that stuff catch you off guard? Uh, can you walk us through like when they um, sort of came into your life and 
Uh, is there a familial background with any of that stuff? And, and just give us a little more background as far as what, what the history is there. Yeah. So there, there was no history um, with me. It was very stark onset at around 30 years old. Uh, my primary diagnosis is obsessive compulsive disorder. That was completely the driver of like any secondary depression was just like how like crippling and paralyzing the OCD was. Um, it initially manifested is obsessions about health. So like, do I have heart disease? Um, am I going to have a stroke? Uh, and completely like out of left field because I've never... I've been the person like whose family has to be like, you have to go to the doctor. You haven't been in two years. So it was very bizarre. Um, I guess the, the good thing is that it was so bizarre that I immediately realized that like something is off in my brain. So I didn't have a period of like a year or two of trying to fix it on my own. It was about three days. And I told my wife, like something's wrong in my brain. I need to go see a psychiatrist. Um, and um, what was her reaction to that? I mean, she was definitely a little bit scared because neither of us had any history with mental health in, in either of our own lives or really our families. Um, I think that like super supportive, obviously, and just wanting me to get help. OCD too, we could spend hours. It's such an un, like un, un, misunderstood diagnosis because th people think about OCD and they just assume it's like a clean freak or someone that's really organized. But what OCD actually is, is it's intrusive thoughts and feelings so I might be having a stroke or I could have a heart attack at any minute accompanied by like massive shots of anxiety throughout your body. And then the compulsion is trying to reassure yourself that you're okay. So in this case, it could be like getting a bunch of blood work or getting an EKG or constantly taking your blood pressure. Um, but like a hundred, 200, 300 times a day. And the themes can morph. So for me, like I had a big health theme and then I had a theme focused on like the meaning of life and like existential distress. Um, and the difference with OCD is like, oh, what's the meaning of life? I can say that and have a conversation. It can even be uncomfortable at times, but with OCD, like it just paralyzes you with anxiety that you can't answer this question or that you might never know um, to the point like where you don't wanna leave your house because like you can't answer this question. Um, uh, I was in what I'd call intensive therapy for OCD. So once to twice a week, um, using a, a method called exposure and response prevention for probably six to eight months before I really like started to get better. Um, and now it's back to a point just five years later where actually it's funny tomorrow I'm getting blood work because my wife is forcing me because I haven't been to the doctor in like four years since this all went down and I eat like four eggs a day. So she's like, you should get your cholesterol checked. But just how I only say that because like, it's hard to imagine that that was my brain then. Cause there was no history of like being nervous about health and it's not something. So it was like a switch was just like put in the wrong lever and then it just completely tailspun. Uh, and it took a long time to get, to get back on track for sure. It's interesting because anxiety, fear, obsessiveness, uh, we had on Quinn Snyder, the head coach of the Utah Jazz, and he talked about coaching in sports is consuming. And that was the word he used. And I think it's an appropriate word having worked with sports coaches. So we think about anxiety, fear, consuming, and a lot of high performers are leveraging that in, in some way or experiencing that in some way. For you, you, know, you, you just put out your third book, um, it takes a lot of work to put out a book. Your books are very thorough and research-based. Um, how do you know where the lines are between what's healthy and, and what's harmful? It's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Uh, so I can, I can now feel like in my body when working on a productive pursuit, so like getting a book out starts to feel like OCD just pointed in a direction that people celebrate. So for instance, with a book, it could be like constantly obsessing about like, did I get this right? Or did I write this paragraph as well as I could have? Or am I doing everything possible during the book's launch to market it? And then the compulsion, the reassurance seeking could be like constantly rewriting the sentence or like checking your book sales rank a million times or trying to make endless adjustments to the marketing plan. 
Um, and these things are all on a spectrum, right? During a book launch, being a little bit obsessive is totally normal. But I've just had to be really careful of like when it starts to feel like that's the only thing that my brain can pay attention to. That for me, that's kind of like a, you know, oh, like I need to probably start like scaling back a bit or like just seeing thoughts and not necessarily reacting to them. Um, but it is really tough because you could be freaking out about the meaning of life and you could be in a room with your partner and your child and it's like they're not even there. And it's really sad and it's really hard and you'd go get help. You could also be the head coach of a major sports organization in a room with your partner and your child, thinking about the game plan, thinking about the season for what, six months of the year. And it's like your partner and your child aren't even there and that's celebrated. So like, there's so much nuance here too, towards like what it's directed toward and, and is it having a net positive impact or a net negative impact in your life? You know, I was just talking about this with someone that, cause like balance often comes up in, in conversations and I don't necessarily think balance is the right framework. And like the, the woman, I, I'm forgetting her name from Hungary. That was like the driver behind this MRNA vaccine. If you read profiles of her work, she was just completely obsessed. And I am so glad that she stayed in the lab 18 to 20 hours a day. Now, does that mean that she's a great mother or partner? I have no idea but I'm glad that she exists and I'm glad that she did that. So like, I think with all of these kinds of things, it's, it, it's important to say, Hey, is this having a net positive or a net negative impact in my life? And that can change over time. Um, the last example that I'll give just to show like how much of this is cultural is you think of an Olympic swimmer. So someone like a Michael Phelps, that if they miss a workout, they become really anxious. So there are stories of Olympians, like they're traveling, they, they'll get to a hotel, they'll go to the pool at two in the morning to get their workout in. And then for one to four hours, they're staring at the same line in a pool back and forth. That's a lot like OCD. You're super anxious. All you're thinking about is swimming. And then you get the workout in to reassure yourself and feel better. But that's just training in an Olympic cycle. And then we wonder why so many Olympic athletes come out of their sport and suffer from anxiety, depression, OCD, addiction because it's like a very similar brain that is fueling this. Um, so it's a very long winded way to say, like, I have an obsessive temperament. It undoubtedly fuels a lot of the things that I do that are productive. And I truly think what happened, this is what my psychiatrist thinks. This is what my therapist thinks is like a, a, a switch in my brain just like went the wrong direction. And the neurochemical mix that was happening in there was like primed for it. And then it just completely took off and it jarred, jarred my system. Um, that approach to me makes a lot more sense. Cause like, were my parents perfect? No. Were they good enough? Yes. Like there was no like smoking gun in my childhood for why this would happen. One of the things you're hitting on is there can be a dark side to elite high performance. And you mentioned Michael Phelps and swimming. Like I've worked with a lot of different athletes in a lot of different sports and I call them pain sports. So swimming cross country, we had Steve Magnus, your, your co-author on, um, wrestling, American football, gymnastics, tennis. There are sports that physically are so demanding that you have to deal with discomfort in a way that is often different than the rest of the population does. And with that physical challenge, there's also an emotional, um, mental challenge that also is not always healthy. And your ability, I've talked about, about this with military clients, like they learn how to compartmentalize their emotions so they can do a job in war, but that doesn't necessarily help them as a husband or as a wife or as a father or as a mother. And so I think sometimes we think that peak performance or elite performance is the holy grail when actually there is, that is one piece, but there's these other pieces too that can help us be great human beings outside of our, our job. Yeah. And I think ultimately the superpower that lies underneath all of this, um, and, and I made it such a big part of the practice of groundedness because like, I've seen it in myself, I've seen it now in clients is cultivating the awareness to know what tools you have in your toolkit and when you're using which tools. So you can be a fierce, obsessive, even cutthroat at times, business person, entrepreneur, and that's a tool. But then when you get home, 
and your three-year-old child is bugging you, demanding perfection probably isn't like the right move. It's not going to make him happy. It's not going to make you happy. So pull out a different tool. And if you don't have that tool, you need to cultivate that tool. Um, instead of just thinking of everything is so like singular. It's such a mistake to think that we need to be the same way all the time. We all have these different parts of ourselves that we need to use in different areas. And my book was about the mindset for preparation being different than the mindset for performance. And I almost named it when, and then Dan Pink came out with a book called when, but very different idea behind his book. But I just, I think genuine authenticity is elastic. It's not rigid. Like we have these pieces that we need to bring to certain areas and then pieces that we need to bring to other areas. You mentioned uh, your, your latest book, The Practice of Groundedness. Talk about when you became interested in groundedness. I know you spent a lot of time writing the book. It was coming off passion paradox and peak performance that peak performance really got into this idea of stress plus rest equals growth and you know how we do need to rest, but we also need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, so to speak. And then passion paradox to summarize is about this idea that passion can be fuel, but it also can be a hindrance for many people and uh, can be what leads to darkness in this world and can also lead to brightness, um, which I love because I just think polarity and paradox is so, so important. We talk in singularity to use your word all the time, but groundedness, that, that is a, a singular word there. And I love this idea that there's a practice of groundedness but why write this book and, and when did you first become really intrigued by it? So I, I first became intrigued by it when I started realizing the themes in the third wave therapies that I mentioned that really are studied and evidence-based in work and the main teachings in ancient wisdom traditions. So specifically, and the East, Buddhism and Taoism, and in the West, Stoicism. Brad, were you brought up with religion? I was raised um, is about as reformed Jewish as you could imagine. I had a bar mitzvah. I memorized the Torah portion. That was that. It was not a very spiritual um, religious experience for me back then. And do you have a spiritual framework now that you lean on? Yeah, I would identify mostly as practicing Buddhism. Um, still very culturally Jewish. I don't think that any amount of anything can, can help you shed that. Well, they can't um, get it. They can't get it out of us. <laughs> yeah. You're raised that way. <laughs> but, um, but I think my framework and kind of my philosophy for life is probably closest aligned to, to Buddhism or like, um, like an Eric from humanism. And when did you get exposed to, to those works? So first exposed to Buddhism, um, I spent a summer in the Nepal Himalaya when I was 22. And I remember coming back from that and being like, wow, like I used to think that religion was like dogmatic in this rabbi and I had to go to temple and it was about memorizing stuff and I want nothing to do with it to like having my first kind of understanding that like spirituality is different than religion and it can be so much more and philosophy is different than religion. And it can be so much more. And I'm sure that there are these beautiful parts of Judaism. It just wasn't the Judaism I was raised with. Um, so that was my first exposure. And then I probably held it pretty lightly until I got sick with OCD, got through the therapy, and then started reading um, all of these Western Buddhist teachers. And it's like, oh my gosh, like this is the stuff that the Buddha, the historical Buddha was pointing towards like millennia ago. And it's true. So if you wipe out the part about like, gods and superpowers rebirth i think i believe in but i believe in it like we're reborn every second every minute every day because all there is is the present moment i don't necessarily think i'm going to come back as an animal um i think that like other parts of buddhism that throw people off so this notion of like interbeing um well, yes, it seems weird to think that you're the tree and like, we're all going to die. We're all going to degrade and stuff will grow out of the ground. Um, so I just started to realize like, this is pretty true, like at its essence. Um, and then, yeah, as I mentioned, like the more of it, I saw that Buddhism and then also Taoism and Stoicism are largely teaching these principles that are now being validated to help people's mental health. Um, that's when I, I did a deep dive reading on all of those traditions or in all of those traditions. What was one thing that you discovered as you wrote this book that 
you think would be most helpful for our listeners to to take away from today? I think that the biggest thing and why it's called groundedness is, you know, you think of like a big old redwood tree. And if you've ever been in the presence of one, they're just awesome. My family and I used to live in Northern California. We'd go see the old growth redwoods. Like they are, nothing can describe what you feel standing under one of those. And most people, they look up at the overstory and they admire it. And they say, this is beautiful. And then the trunk is the size of a school bus. So they look at the trunk and they're like, oh, this is incredible. But no one ever says, I wonder what the roots of that bad boy are like. Because the roots are underground. You don't see the roots. But the roots are what holds that tree to the ground throughout all kinds of weather. They're what nourishes the tree. Without a strong root system, the tree is going to topple. It's going to die. And we're the same. And we spend a lot of time on what's visible. Peak performance, everything's clicking. That's kind of the overstory. My second book, The Passion Paradox, that's like the rise, the trunk. But I neglected to really explore like what are the roots that are the things that so often get overlooked or are hidden or are cannibalized by bright and shiny objects that actually are the foundation for performance and well-being um, across the board. And you know, that's the that's the argument in the book is that hey, we neglect these roots at our own peril. Here's what the roots are, here's how you practice them. So I think the thing to take away from the book is that it's very easy to get caught up in kind of like the peak and when everything's clicking, it's great. But if, you, if you're not tending to that root system, then the peak isn't as strong as you think. It's kind of fragile, actually. How would you describe or define your roots? How do you think about your roots for, for yourself? Yeah, I think that they're very much aligned with, um, with, with what I've found in the book. Um, so I think like the, the book basically lays out these six key principles, uh, acceptance, presence, patience, vulnerability, community, and uh, movement as in physical movement. And I think that if I am practicing all those things in my life, I tend to feel pretty grounded. Um, of course, I'm biased because I just spent like four years researching like what are the, the, the fundamental roots, I think at a more personal level. Um, I like to think about being and doing and how, for me, it's really important to be in both of those modes and to realize that they're actually informing each other all the time. So your being or your internal state or your solitude and reflection, that helps you choose what to do out in the world. But all the things that you do also shape that internal state. So um, if, if I think about my core values, like life and love would sum them up. And life is the doing, it's the engagement, it's the coaching, it's the speaking, it's the being with my family. And love is like the deep presence that's more internal. Is one of those, do you over-index on one of those and under-index on another? Is there anything that you find yourself going more towards? Is it more towards the doing and, and liking? Is it more towards the being and the loving that you find yourself that you have to re- ground yourself or reset yourself back to one of them? Where, where do you lean? I think I'm a doer um, by nature. So I think that I probably lean more towards doing. Um, and I've learned that I can lean more towards doing and that's okay. Um, but if I do too much, too frequently, too soon, at too intensive a pace, then the being gets crowded out and I don't feel as good. And the doing itself loses some of its value. Um, so I've had to be fairly rigid about having like these being practices in my life, um, that allow me to, to, to have that time and space. I often think about maximizing and wisdom and how they're not necessarily the same thing. We talk about those elite athletes or elite actors or musicians. Um, they can get to a really high level from a performance standpoint, but they might not have leaned a whole lot of wisdom. They just learned how to execute something. And I know for me, like I used to use them one in the same, but the, for me, I, I'm much more curious about wisdom um, and starting there and then figuring out, all right, what ways can I strive? How can I maximize? Um, how do you think about wisdom and how do you think about maximizing? So I think that um, I don't necessarily think that they need be opposed, but I hear you because I think they often are. I think 
a maximizing mindset often makes it very hard to be present because if you're constantly trying to do more, see more, read more, achieve more, you end up being pretty rushed and, and maybe even a little frenetic and frantic where a wisdom mindset is much more slower, much deeper. And I think that presence and love, and this is a big part of the book, are actually like one in the same. So to me, like the utmost expression of love, whether it's for a person, for a craft, for a community, is to give it like your full attention and caring. And if you give something your full attention and caring, you are going to gain wisdom from that thing. I think when you're in a maximizing mindset, as I said, it's a lot harder to give full attention and caring to any one thing because you're so concerned with what's next on the list. All right. So you work with a lot of CEOs, entrepreneurs who have raised capital and anytime you raise capital, now there's an, expectation. Do stuff. <laughs> there's an expectation that you better maximize this thing. We want to maximize our returns. And it often is a very transactional world where you used to live in the Bay area. I mean, this is like a big, big piece of it. It's like, Hey, I'm raising X amount of dollars. It's valued at Y and I need to get this return. Uh, I have a client right now. They just raised a bunch of money and there's now pressure to get a certain return. So when you're coaching these types of people, how do you help them make sure that they are grounded, that their roots are where they need to be in part so that they can get the results that they're, they're craving or seeking. What are some things that you do to help them on their, on their journey? Yeah. So, um, the first thing is to help them realize that they are entering like this growth stage and that it's only going to be a season. It doesn't have to be forever. B do you want to be the leader of this or do you want to outsource it? Like, there is nothing wrong with hiring a COO. There is nothing wrong with um, hiring two COOs to help really grow the thing. And then the third is, you know, not every company needs to be an IPO. There's nothing wrong with building something if you're more of a builder and then having it get acquired. Um, there's no right or wrong answer. But I think for a founder and for a CEO, it's asking yourself that question, like, am I comfortable with growing? And some people love growing and they get into operational mode and they're totally fine with it. And other people can't stand it. And it feels like it's crushing their soul. And the world needs both kinds of people. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, you know, I've had clients decide to take their companies private as like 15 person shops. They paid their seed investors back. And now they operate a business where they're profitable enough to pay salaries for 15 people. And I've had clients have companies valued at over a billion dollars because they grow, grow, grow. Um, so again, it comes back to like, I think a lot of self-awareness with this, hey, what do you really want? Why do you want it? And how are you going to fit in here? And what do you want to drive versus what do you want to outsource? And I have to realize as a coach, I bring my own bias into that because like you, I am, I'm a simple. I don't want to say I'm a simpleton because I don't think that sounds great, but I really value simplicity. So like I don't grow my coaching practice. I've had, I've had so many offers from apps to come partner with me or to get hired or to start like a full on coaching business. Um, and I don't do any of that. Like I co-author, I have a collaborative partner on a lot of stuff with Steve and we've got one person, he's like our COO that works for us. And we've been offered money, like to raise money to grow our thing. And it just doesn't interest us um, because we are not of that mindset. So I also have to communicate that bias to coaching clients. And I've still had coaching clients that have grown like to the umph degree and back. It, it's public information. So I can say it for a long time, I coached David Cancel, who's the CEO of Drift. And that company was recently valued at like $2 billion. Um, and I was with him from like early funding. So it, 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 but he is like a, he is a doer to the umph degree and he really prioritizes that. And I've had other clients, as I mentioned, that buy their companies back pretty early on. So when I first started doing the executive coaching piece, my background's in sports psychology. I remember sitting at dinner with my younger brother who had a startup and I said to him, I'm like, gosh, I would love to work with entrepreneurs who are, are startup CEOs. And he looked at me and he goes, Brian, I don't have money for that. And I don't have time for that. And 
He's like, I need to be really lean and obsessed with getting this thing to where I want to get it to. When people come to you and they're still early stage, um, what's their rationale for, for paying money to, to work with you? And, and what's the rationale for starting early rather than waiting a little bit? So what's their rationale or kind of what do I what's their tell rationale? Them? Yeah, their rationale is there's a ton of selection bias in my clients because I have all this public writing. So I think very rarely do I have someone come to me and it doesn't work out. I think that's happened like once or twice over six years because people have read my stuff. So they're, they're coming to me for a reason. Um, a lot of times it's just, I'm a little bit scared. <laughs> like I'm raising all this money. Like, and I, 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 there's certain things that I can no longer discuss with members of my own team. And I want to have a trusted advisor. Sometimes it is, um, I know myself and I know that if I don't have somebody to check me, I'm going to work myself to the ground. Other times it is, I had this great idea, but I'm an idea person and I'm not going to work hard enough. I'm going to go off in outer space. And now I have all this money and I have to return. I actually need help doing the thing. Um, sometimes it is, I don't want to um, have my marriage ruined by this. So I need some help having, having had someone that has pattern recognition and has seen how people can, can hold it together, both in like being very dedicated to family and to their pursuit. Um, and really everything in between. There's no, I think, single common thing. Maybe fear of burning out and wanting to get upstream of that is probably the most important just because there have been so many high profile stories of people that burn out. We mentioned growth a lot in our conversation today and I heard it the word over and over again. And as we said earlier, there's a formula that you and Steve highlighted in peak performance, stress plus rest equals growth. I'm curious how groundedness plays with that formula. As you look back at that formula and you've written a book on groundedness, how do they intersect? How do they play with each other? That's a great question. I think that formula is most effective if you already have a solid foundation. Mm. So like the solid foundation, the groundedness, like that, that is the chassis that holds everything. So can you go and cycle stress plus rest equals growth without groundedness? Yes, but it will be much more fragile. Whereas if you are constantly practicing these principles of groundedness and you have this solid foundation, it makes you so much more durable and so much more robust. So that cycle is both more durable and robust. I think that's a great place for us to close. Uh, Brad, if people want to find out more about you, the book, uh, obviously on social media, you have, you have a presence there. Where can they do all that? Yeah. Thanks so much for asking. So uh, I am on Twitter. My handle is at B Stahlberg. Uh, you can get the book wherever you pick up books. Um, Amazon sometimes does this. Uh, it doesn't affect my bottom line at all, but they drop the price of the book by like 40%. So at least as we're recording, it's, it's heavily discounted there. Um, but you can also get it from Barnes and Noble, your independent bookstore, pretty much wherever. Uh, and then my website is my name, www.bradstolberg.com. And um, you mentioned that Steve and I have this platform called The Growth Equation, and you can access that through my website or if you just Google uh, The Growth Equation. Hey, Brad, one more question. Why write this book by yourself and, and not with Steve? So those first two books, which by the way, I'll give a plug for them, Peak Performance and Passion Paradox. We had Steve on the podcast. Uh, recommend people check those out. I can't recommend Groudness because I haven't read it yet, um, but I did order it on Amazon today. And I can also say, like Brad said, I got the discount. So um, I got that going for me. Um, but I recommend people check out those two books. But why go solo on this project? Why not have your partner in crime and, and write it with Steve? Yeah, I was going to try to be sarcastic and be like, oh, you don't want to know. But no, I love Steve to death. Um, the honest to goodness truth is a, a bigger part of this book was really like my story of losing my own grounds, getting a diagnosis of OCD, having like an earthquake underneath all of my peak performance in, in, in my own life. Um, and through my executive coaching practice, like a lot of intimate client stories. Um, Steve also has a book that is going to be released solo next year. So we both had these ideas and we said we could either do these two books together over a longer period of time, or you write the one that you're most into and I'll write the one that I'm most into. And, and we chose the latter. Um, but um, 
yeah, I mean, it's, I, it has nothing, nothing to do with Steve and I's partnership. If anything, one of the coolest parts about launching this book is watching Steve shamelessly promote it as if it were his own book. Um, and I will absolutely be doing the same thing. Uh, he's got a book on toughness coming out um, mid to late next year. Awesome. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. Brad is on LinkedIn as well. Uh, and then you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Brad, great to meet you. I'm glad that we made this happen. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Looking forward to diving into your book and, and hopefully staying in touch and learning from you a bunch in the future. Yeah, thanks so much. I really enjoyed getting the, uh, getting the time to chat with you today, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I think that the biggest thing and why it's called groundedness is, you know, you think of like a big old redwood tree. And if you've ever been in the presence of one, they're just awesome. My family and I used to live in Northern California. We'd go see the old growth redwoods. Like they are, nothing can describe what you feel standing under one of those. And most people, they look up at the overstory and they admire it. And they say, this is beautiful. And then the trunk is the size of a school bus. So they look at the trunk and they're like, oh, this is incredible. But no one ever says, I wonder what the roots of that bad boy are like. Because the roots are underground. You don't see the roots. But the roots are what holds that tree to the ground throughout all kinds of weather. They're what nourishes the tree. Without a strong root system, the tree is going to topple. It's going to die. And we're the same. And we spend a lot of time on what's visible. Peak performance, everything's clicking. That's kind of the overstory. My second book, The Passion Paradox, that's like the rise, the trunk. But I neglected to really explore, like, what are the roots?